Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom, Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Gable and I am the editor of the TLS. My dog-fancying chum is Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello. We'll get to dogs in a minute. Our food quiz first. You ready? Yes. Thea, I would like to know your favourite pie. Is right. a pie an Italian thing? Um. What's Italian for pie? Well, you'd, get, you'd have sort of sweet pies I suppose I can't really think of pies in an Italian context but that might just be because I'm so I only think of apple pie made by my English side of the family okay what is your favorite pie thing um well uh, probably a rabbit pie a rabbit pie yeah I once went to um this place okay. uh, for uh, bonfire night and um they'd built up the the pyre and um started to set it alight and a poor rabbit flew out of it squealing it was horrible and then um that obviously marked my subconscious i went to the pub and had a rabbit pie that's terrible isn't it so, <laughs> a, a rabbit <laughs> fled from a bonfire and that oh, i'm hungry yeah, it just obviously just sowed the seed in my mind and it was on the menu so oh, there God. you go i'm a bit shocked by that um <laughs> uh, to table exactly now uh, why might we be talking about dogs this week we're not going to talk about it in terms of the main podcast but the front cover of the tls oh yes which i have here is a lovely picture of a dog Sitting on a chair. My Brilliant Friend, which is, of course, an Elena Frante novel we're making a joke about. David E. Cooper on the joyousness of dogs. Yes. Yeah. It's a lovely piece. It's um, David is a, a philosopher. He's reviewing a bunch of books on dogs. The joy of dogs and our joy in them. But it goes rather deeper, we should say, than the whole they do the funniest things line. Which, <laughs> which is, is also, I mean, it does also admit that they do do the funniest things. Um, but he quotes one student of Animal Emotions who observes that what draws us to dogs harks back to a time when humans were more like dogs, more spontaneous and able to enjoy the world outside our skins more immediately. As Rilke once put it, the animals are unreflectingly in their world, whereas their owners stand before or against a world that is a constant struggle to find a way through. So we're 
we're, we're, we're going overseas. We're dampening well. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. It's a lovely piece and it's a, it's a cover. Make sure that you, you, you check that out. Here's the bit where I encourage you to subscri- subscribe to the TLS where you get your dogs and your Rilke together. Uh, use this special offer code to get on board, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. That's the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. The best price anywhere on the internet, five issues for £5 or $5. Coming up this week, Toby Lishtig never seems to stop going to the theatre to see the work of legendary figures of the 20th century. After Beckett a couple of weeks ago, he's now been to see the new Tom Stoppard. Handily enough, Toby's also our editor of Jewish Studies in the TLS and so can tell us about this week's edition that features in a special section on the subject. David Horsepool is not just the TLS editor and author of great works of history often cited in this podcast, you know. Who can forget his peerless The English Rebel? Thea, you couldn't forget I that, couldn't. could you? Neither of us can forget that. No, David's also an avid consumer of audiobooks. He's written about some of his recent purchases and can answer the question, is listening the same as reading? And we'll be talking to one of the world's great Shakespeareans, James Shapiro, but not specifically about Shakespeare. He has seen Ivo van Hove's new production of West Side Story and has written an essay about the sources of conflict in that show. Tom Stoppard has been writing plays for more than five decades and Toby Lichtig has provided a roll call of their revels in the dance of big themes and clash of unlikely juxtapositions. So we got Philosophy and Acrobats in Jumpers in 1972, Spycraft and Physics, that's Hapgood in 1988, Dictatorship and Pop Music, Rock and Roll. <laughs> then there was Hamlet as an absurdist tragic comedy, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead from 1966, The Dadaist against Leninists in a Zurich cafe, Travesties in 1974, and so on and so on. But what happens when he takes on himself? especially his Jewish heritage, not a subject of dazzling intellectual surprises, but of historical heft and a sort of grim familiarity. Stoppard's play Leopoldstadt has opened directly in the West End with a huge cast, direction from Patrick Marber and the buzz you might expect from a national treasure coming back for one last job. Is it worth the hype? Toby's here now to tell us. Toby, hello. Hello. So this isn't... A traditional Stoppardian play, is it? Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, it's definitely more personal than some of his other plays. And Stoppard's often uh, thought of as, a, you know, a, a playwright who deals with this clash of big ideas and themes and he's clever, he's witty. And it does have all those things. But there is this sense of personal reckoning and there's this uh, realisation for him as he grew older that actually what he thought of was a fairly tenuous relationship with his own Jewish heritage. He thought there was maybe sort of a, a grandparent lurking in the background. He t- it turns out when he was in his 50s, he discovered that all four of his grandparents were Jewish and that his mother had actually lost several siblings. Usually you would know about that from the very beginning. You would be surrounded by stories of, of, of your family. Well, yes and no. I mean, it was fairly it was fairly common, I think, particularly in Britain, growing up in the 1560s, for that sort of stuff to be suppressed. So, for example, mm. my own mother, her parents were Berlin refugees, but she didn't discover that her aunt had died in Auschwitz until she was an adult and this is not just my own story you know there are lo- lots and lots of stories of suppression of these is that people were trying to pass were, they, were, were people they trying would, to say well, we're, we're now British is pa- that- parents were trying to protect their children from yeah. the, just the emotional damage there was a lot of trying to pass and, and you know also kind of Britain in the 50s was dealing with its own 
reckoning with the Second World War, you know, lots of other people who'd fought in it. And in a way, I think there was a sense that the Jewish community didn't want to kind of draw attention to itself too much. So there are various reasons, but I think Stoppard's was an extreme example, mm. absolutely. You talk about stump studies. Yes. In this piece, which is a, fast, is a great... Is it your... That's the, the, no, it's my, it's my, it's my own little conscience. Yeah, so I, I, I draw them, There's a quote by this author called Helen Epstein who wrote this brilliant book, actually, a seminal book called Children of the Holocaust. And she there's a quote in it which she says, our family tree had been reduced to a... or had been burnt to a stump. And so stump studies in, in, in my sort of formulation in this piece is just this, this kind of reckoning with this truncated, burnt stump of, of a family you know what happens when you when you grow up and you discover and you start asking questions about the holocaust and you discover that quite a few of your grandparents generation or parents generation died and how that reckoning happens and for stop as we've been talking about it, it happened very late you know he was he was quite old and he then chose not to write about it for a bit and there is a sense you know his mother only started talking about it when she was in her 80s he's in his 80s now and I think there is a sense he thought well I haven't got many plays left in me this might be my last one this is my opportunity to think about this does he say why he didn't has he has he written or spoken about why he chose not to confront it earlier um I don't I don't think he's he's spoken about why he didn't um I mean he first started talking about it in the late 90s as a speech he gave in the 90s about this experience and I think there's just a sense that it was kind of percolating away in him you know he had some other plays to write as well he's done quite a lot of stuff busy man but uh, so yeah I I think but I I think in a way he was probably not quite sure where to take it and despite this being a personal play I mean it's not there's a character who could be a stand-in for him who sort of appears towards the end but it's not about his family and it's in fact it's not you know he's he his family were from Czechoslovakia from Moravia this is all set in Vienna so you know he's still done a slant-wise take on it and is there a risk that that you don't want to say cliche for this type of subject matter but it's a very well-worn path now that he's treading it is and it's a it's a problem i think to a certain extent particularly if we're going to play it straight and he's played it fairly straight so you know most of it's set at the kind of turn of the century in vienna then it sort of progresses to the 20s and then there's this kind of big scene it's the kind of gestapo style scene when the family are now in, you know, they're all crowded into this small apartment in 38. It's the night before Kristallnacht. It's The scene is very well done, but it is it is a bit of a cliche. I mean, you know, you've got the officer turning up to requisition the apartment and to be, you know, to kind of terrify everyone. And there are gunshots outside. And we kind of know this quite well. And I'm not saying you can ever write about it. And I'm not saying you can never stage it. And I'm not saying you can ever stage it fairly straight. But you've kind of got to earn that because, because the tragedy is so built into the whole edifice that if you're not doing something new with it I wonder what you are doing and in a way we can forgive Stoppard to a certain extent you know this is a late play of his this is his personal reckoning but I wonder had this been scripted by a you know a Tyro playwright and put on at the Hampstead Theatre I I might have thought slightly differently about it as a subject. Is it funny? It, yeah, it is. It is in places. There's, a, you know, there are some, there are some uh, very funny scenes. There's a, there's a great bit with a, there's a circumcision scene. It happens off stage when a, a moil turns up and then you know asks for a cigar cutter and everyone kind of you know recoils and it turns out he's not actually the moil and he's just got a cigar and he's a man from the bank. But you know, there are a few playful things like that. Stoppard is often very funny. There's, there's, there, the reason why it's been the reason why he set it in Vienna, um, I think, is because you know it was such a. 
uh, a site of intellectual ferment in the kind of sort of early 20th century. And you've got Freud and you've got Mahler and you've got these big names. And he, so he does his stoppard thing of dealing with big intellectual subjects and doing it in an often playful and humorous way. But it's, I mean, it's definitely more tragic than is most he just of a, How much play. is he a show-off? Because I'm always... <laughs> and I don't want to say, say that... I saw... I always mention this because it's, it's lingering. When I was at university, I saw Shakespeare in Love, which, of course, he script-doctored, yes. didn't he? Yeah. Uh, and it was just... And I just wondered, is he performing for intellectual... Show? He's a kind of intellectual show-off to the absolute nth degree. He's brilliant. Is he performing for that? So I, I think I think he is a bit of a show off, but I don't think I don't think he's for intellectual show offs. I mean, I think, for example, his his first play, you know, his, in, in a way, his, still his most famous play, *Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead*. It's fantastically clever and funny and intricate, but it's also a really good spectacle. It's really entertaining. Yeah. And a recent play I saw of his, which Patrick Marber, who, who directed Leibovitz, also directed um, on a revival, *Travesties*. Again, it's fantastically clever. It's all set in the Zurich Cafe, and you've got this sort of James Joyce is there and various other literary figures. But it's a brilliantly entertaining spectacle, and that is something Stoppard does very well. One of the things that he's been criticised for um, in the past, and in fact, you, you quote. Um a previous TLS editor, quite funnily, on, on, on this point. Uh, he's been criticised for a didacticism. Yes. Which, in connection yeah. with this material... I don't think we should be quoting previous TLS <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way. I think there should be some sort of rule. I didn't that. name him. I'm no, gonna, I'm if, there, if there is a rule, I'm going to name him now. Yeah. Jeremy Treglown once described Stoppard as a one-man adult education centre. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, and he is, he, is a, he is a bit, and there are these slightly cringy moments in the play when we suddenly get to sort of find out about what Emperor Franz Joseph did to emancipate the Jews in the 18th century or 17th, sorry, uh, 19th century and characters come out with these goblets of history in a way that people simply don't talk and there's a bit of clunky exposition as well and I, that is a, a bit of a problem. It's actually less of a problem in this play than in previous plays of his. But yeah, that is it's definitely a fault of his. Uh, we've done this as part of a Jewish studies feature. We do that once a year. Uh, we do. Uh, in the TLS. Uh, and you know, I, I came in sort of three and a half years ago and we did it and it's, it's well, well worth doing. But it's a funny thing. Is it a strange thing to do? I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, why do we do it? Yes and okay. So one, I guess there are commercial reasons. We we always run it in line with Jewish Book Week, which is quite a big literary event. Yep. It's held in London. Um, at, you know, we we have thematic issues and, and Jewish studies is an area of research and I think one of the nice things about it is it cuts across all the disciplines so you know it, you can have a bit of history you can have a bit of food you can have a bit of you know that what makes something a piece of Jewish studies is fairly nebulous and that so I think that makes it worthwhile but I mean yes I, I agree there isn't there isn't a Buddhist studies issue no. and I think we'd struggle to put together one I mean, there's an awful lot of literature that could be classified as um, of Jewish interest or, you know, kind of touching on Judaism or cultural Judaism. And I, yeah, so I, th I think that's that's why we do it, essentially. And the risk is, um, and this thing we need to talk about a bit, is that for lots of people, and this play confronts this as well, Jewish culture, how, how, how long in a conversation about Jewish culture can you get into before you mention the Holocaust? It's become this... And it struck me as not the, the most significant tragedy, but one of the tragedies of the Holocaust is its destructive force through the years afterwards in that it becomes this dominating subject that when we say, if you say Jewish, we talk about the Holocaust pretty quickly. 
We and can. That's do. that's that's both in, that's both right at one level to memorialise the dead, but it's 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 difficult in other ways. It's isn't it? re- the whole thing is really really difficult. And I mean, look, you've got two options: you either memorialise or you don't memorialise. So you know, <laughs> let's keep talking about it. That's fine. But there was also there's a very famous Jewish historian called Salo Baron, and he spoke about the lachrymose conception of Jewish yeah. history. And he said that in the early sixties, and he wasn't just talking about the Holocaust; he was talking about the whole two thousand years of persecution and exile and all the rest of it. And he rejected it. And this was a man who had lost his own family in the Holocaust. He came over to the States in the 20s, but many of his family remained in Europe. And I think there, there, it, it would be a tragedy if we could only carry on talking about the Holocaust in relation to Jewish experience, but I don't think that's happening. And I do think that, you know, for anyone who was sort of grew up between 1945 and sort of the present day, it's quite hard not to think about certainly family history and sort of recent cultural history without that shadow. But we're sort of on the cusp of this now, aren't we? I mean, you know, kind of family histories are blurring into cultural memory. And yeah. I think as time passes, it becomes more of a sort of, I don't know, sort of, I don't know, it's a universal tragedy. Yeah. But then the responsibility will rise not to forget, because there's a great fear in the 50s that Auschwitz would be forgotten, wasn't there? Yeah. And, and, and that doesn't seem well, to have happened. There's that quote on the memorial um, in the US um, about the importance of, go- is it, who would it have been... Um, was it Eisenhower? The the the, the, the line where he says, been. yeah, he said he said um, that he's so glad that he went to see for himself because he knew that if he didn't, um, it would only be so long before people said it didn't happen. Yeah, and th- I mean there is it's, there's a whole complex line of argument which said that the Holocaust remembrance didn't really get going until the sixties. And actually, in, in researching this piece, I was quite surprised to find that you know the Holocaust Memorial Day in this country seems like it's just something that's sort of been set in stone for a long time. The first one only happened in 2001. Yeah. So we've actually only, we've got very good at remembering the Holocaust now. And deny still so, exists. I mean, David Baddiel did a programme. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of, of course, of, of course. But and, it's still a thing, isn't it? I mean, everything's part of a culture war now, well, so it's possibly in a, in more weaponised than it's ever been. In a way, there's probably more denial now than there was in the 50s, because mm. the more you remember, then the more you get the loonies on the other fringe saying it didn't happen, theorists. and conspiracy theories, mm. and all the rest of it. But um, I don't want to just leave, leave it on that subject, so <laughs> one of the points I'm making, there's lots of other things in the piece, but let's just talk about one. Uh, Norman, Lebrecht, Norman Lebrecht has written a book, Genius and Anxiety, which has the argument that Jewish people have been responsible for a disproportionate amount of invention and creativity in history. Toby Lichtig. <laughs> Discuss. You're a Jewish person. Yes. Is that true? I and mean, why is that true? Again, <laughs> it's really complicated. I mean, if it is look, true. I mean, look, that certainly um, Jews of the diaspora have, have kind of done well in inverted commas. You look at the Nobel Prize lists, if that means anything, there are quite a few people of Jewish origin and Jewish faith and Jewish culture there. There are some really good reasons why Jews in the past two or three hundred years sort of became culturally, or became culturally important. One, high, level, high, high, high levels of literacy for very obvious kind of reasons of study and quite high levels of ability to engage with texts, even in poor communities all the, all the way across Europe. Also, things to do with like being denied land ownerships. There wasn't a kind of peasant Jewish class. I mean, there were lots of very poor Jews, but they weren't kind of working on the land. Blah, blah, blah. There are so many incredibly complex reasons why Jews might have become quite educated, even in poor settings. I am slightly uncomfortable with grand claims about mm. kind of world Jewry and it's in the same way that when <laughs> which Jews, is, is, is very Norman Lebrecht that's not what he's saying that's not what he's saying no but sort of the, the idea is you know, 
Jews are clever in inverted commas. Mm. It's not what he's saying, and he's he is he is saying, look, that there are quite a few people of Jewish background who have, who have done quite well, and why is that? But I think you can quite. Well, we did quickly, the whole thing about Jewish comedy, didn't we? Which is that there there are circumstantial reasons why Jewish comedy has developed. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And in in the cleverness, high achieving uh, context, it's it's also it connects to that whole thing of of. of you know, second-generation immigrants quite often outperform, in inverted commas, natives because exactly. there's and less of the entitlement or a, a desire to And this impress. sort of, this kind of endless sort of battle between assimilation and not assimilation, exactly. the push and pull of it, which, you know, kind of, again, was set back in many tragic and awful ways by the Holocaust, but then because there's, you know, sort of regrowth springs up from that. And so there, there, there are good reasons for all of this. Yeah, um, you're an inventive and creative person. <laughs> there, there you go. Yeah, that's, that's, I speak for the whole of World Jury. Yeah. <laughs> Toby Lichtig, speaking on behalf of all of World Jury. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. West Side Story, the most popular and successful Shakespeare musical of all time, began life some 70 years ago as East Side Story, in which the Romeo and Juliet plotline unspooled on the other side of Manhattan, between Catholic and Jewish teenagers. But that never really took off, and it wasn't until the conflict of the 1950s between Mexican-American gangs and white American gangs that things really clicked. The writers, Arthur Lawrence and Leonard Bernstein, shifted their focus to Puerto Ricans in their home city of New York, brought in Jerome Robbins to choreograph and direct, and some young lyricist called Stephen Sondheim. And the West Side Story we know today was born. After several Broadway revivals, the material feels as fresh, as keyed into the news of the day as ever. How could it not with lines like, life is all right in America, if you're all white in America? Ivo Van Hove, the man responsible for West Side Story's most recent run, which began in New York last week, has himself described it as seeming as if it were written yesterday, which makes his adaptation all the more perplexing. Here to tell us all about it is James Shapiro. James, hello. 
Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I didn't realise until I read your piece that it took almost 70 years for West Side Story to come together. It's, it's a fascinating story that you tell. Well, West Side Story began back in uh, the 1940s, and it has had a complicated history in America and around the world uh, in the ensuing decades, and uh, most excitingly and uh, disturbingly in certain ways right now with Evo Van Hove's latest incarnation of the show on Broadway. Well, we'll come to uh, we'll, keep, we'll come to Evo um, Van Hove's uh, rendition very soon. Um, it's interesting um, when the show was being written uh, way back when. Originally uh, uh, and understandably, I suppose it was they had wanted to root it in their own Jewish experience, but they found that that had already been done, and so then that's when it sort of started to change its in terms of the conflict that it that it puts on stage. They they knew they wanted to do a remake of Romeo and Juliet, and they knew they wanted to bring it to Broadway as a musical. They couldn't figure out what the right conflict was. And initially, as you say, they drew on their own experience. It was going to be the uh, star-crossed relationship of a young Jewish teenager with a young Christian teenager at Passover. But they quickly realized that this issue was no longer a pressing one in uh, America after the Second World War. And by the time we come then to 1957, um, when it appeared in, in the form that we that we know it now, uh, Bernstein was calling it an out-and-out plea for, for racial tolerance. I'm wondering how it was received at the time. I think it was received in much that spirit. There was a recognition that there were racial divisions in this country. There was a deep discomfort with brown-skinned people, both in the Southwest and in New York City for different reasons. One was uh, the rising number of Mexican-American laborers uh, in the Southwest in California. The other was the large number of Puerto Ricans who were U.S. citizens moving from the island of Puerto Rico to uh, New York City. And they realized that this was the new source of conflict and one that they could wrap the story around. But in doing so, Jim, they, they didn't they expose some of their own racial prejudices as well. I mean, th- this version even now has its problems, but uh, in when it's interpreted. But back back when it was first produced, there were it contained racial slurs. It wasn't completely free from the prejudice of its age, was it? I don't think you ever can be. I don't think any good playwright uh, is ever free of prejudice of his moment. And we can think of Shakespeare and The Merchant of Venice as as a good example of that. The fact that they only had two Puerto Rican members in the cast in the original production tells you uh, just how far Broadway has had to come. And when Leonard Bernstein's writing to friends excitedly about writing what he calls a a spick song, you, you just cringe because he's speaking out of 1950s America and it doesn't resonate well today. Does everyone know this is Romeo and Juliet? To people, because it's kind of West Side Story has entered the the cultural pantheon, hasn't it? Uh, in and of its own right, does everyone get Romeo and Juliet when they think? Of you it, know, that's you? that's a great question. 
all of us or many of us study Romeo and Juliet in, in, in school, it's not that easy to see the leap from the Shakespeare skeleton, if you will, to what we're watching on stage. And uh, I would say you lose nothing by not recognizing that connection. However, that's what the four young men who created it were trying to do. And uh, I don't think it resembles Shakespeare's play, but it captures uh, the story of star-crossed lovers and rival groups fighting, and I think that that's enough. But it is also... If- interesting to see it in in the context of this this longer tradition of of shakespearean musical it's a you you point it out as being a very american genre isn't it i'd certainly never heard of swinging the dream from 1939 which sounds sounds quite amazing nobody's heard of it really almost no one has heard of it my Shakespeare as an American is different than your Shakespeare's Brits and our traditions that fed into the Shakespeare musical are really different than those that inform the British stage. And I think that it doesn't translate quite so well transatlantically. And the issues that American Shakespeare musicals have wrestled with immigration, race, are really different issues than those that you struggle with in, in the UK. But why do they need Shakespeare then? Because it's... It, it, did Shakespeare give them legitimacy? Was there a kind of Anglophilia? I mean, it serves him right, Shakespeare, because he spent his career lifting off a load of people and, and, and uh, rewriting it for himself. So it, it's fair enough that, that, that the Americans had a go at him. True that. I don't think you need Shakespeare. I think that it did give them give them a kind of uh, legitimacy and authenticity. But there's not a lot of Shakespeare left in this story. It's not like Kiss Me Kate, which is playing a backstage, front stage version of a Shakespeare play against uh, the shenanigans of the actors who are performing it. This uh-huh. really just lifts the template much as Shakespeare had lifted the template from his sources. Um, well, let's tackle Ivor Van Hove's adaptation then. Um, I mean, it sounds like a missed opportunity, to say the least, a kind of a strangely neutered event. I think that it's going to... It's already produced a good deal of controversy. Some critics love it. Some critics hate it. Most critics are responding to the singing, the dancing, the acting, the spectacle. What I was trying to do in my piece for the TLS was to take a step back and look a little bit about the politics of doing this play half century ago today. And uh, it struck me as an American living uh, uh, in Trumplandia that the issues of immigration are page one stories every day and the mistreatment of brown-skinned people in detention camps uh, on our southern border and the rising hostility against African-Americans and Puerto Ricans uh, and all people of color in this country is of immediate concern. So and why does it? What does he do with that? Because, like you said, in some ways, to a director, this is a gift, isn't it? This is a. a, a it is a, a, a gift. It's served up on a silver platter, and for reasons unbeknownst to me, as savvy a director as Van Hove, and I love so much of his work, didn't register, except in the most cursory or. Uh, passing away the conflicts that would have animated this production. The Jets and the Sharks are a white and non-white gang. And here we have virtually indistinguishable mixed race groups on stage. And to me, 
that means he's trying to universalize a play that is still so mired in the politics of the moment that it becomes incoherent. Why has he done that, though? Because, he, you know, my understanding of his work, he's not shy of being even crass. I mean, it seems to me that the knock on him, he's, he either strikes out or hits out the park is the sort of what happens with, with him. And that's, that's the way. You either hit a home run or you strike out. Exactly. And in this one, I don't think he had his finger on the pulse of the culture for whom he was staging this play. And I don't understand that. It, I, I think his cast could have explained it to him. I think that he had a vision of this. I think that uh, that vision didn't connect with the reality of the world in which this play is now being performed. And he missed an opportunity because there's so much talent, there's so much money, there's so much hype around this that it could have really been, if you will, another Hamilton, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, play. And uh, it's not. And it's disappointing to me that he didn't speak to the moment. I don't know what his politics are. I don't really care what his politics are. You just have to present a a play that speaks to the divisions within a culture. He just he, he's come off doing a he just did an adaptation of Ayn Rand, uh, which uh, why anyone would possibly want to do that is a sort of. Is a sort <laughs> uh, of I missed that one. I love Network. I love the Roman <laughs> plays. I passed uh, on on Rand. Yeah, it's, what, wait, was it the Fountainhead? I can't remember which one about the architect. It was, yeah. was it the, the, the Fountainhead? It was the Fountainhead. Yeah, yeah. 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 Roark and all yeah. those sort of tough men who sort of go around making making butch decisions. I saw his um, adaptation a few years ago of um, Lucino Visconti's uh, film uh, Obsession, um, and I think I can't help but feel that. Ivor Van Hove, it's, 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 he's becoming quite easy to parody um, now. Yes, it, it's yes, the same he his, thing. He has his devices. He has his style. I'll tell you where my heart sank seeing this for the second time uh, uh, at, on Broadway. And it's the Officer Crumpke routine. Ordinarily a comic bit earlier mm. in the play. He moves it quite late in the musical. And when this officer confronts these gangs, uh, all the young men pull out cell phones, and it's supposed to be a Black Lives Matter moment. But when the gangs that are pulling out their cell phones to tape police brutality or the threat of police brutality are a group of white skinheads and African Americans, it inevitably becomes a white lives matter as much as a black lives matter moment. And white lives matter is a kind of Trumpian reaction mm. to to that. And you just can't do that. You can't be unaware of the political implications of what you are visually staging. Uh, James, I'd have to let you go, but just uh, it is relevant to what you've just said. You've got a book out called Shakespeare in a Divided America. Um, I'd like to believe that Shakespeare is a useful way of dealing with a divided America, but is that a utopian thought? Jim, what's your case? What can Shakespeare do about the mess that is America? Well, Shakespeare's been weaponized for the past two centuries in America and will continue to help Americans articulate what they otherwise do not want to admit to. I think the West Side story that we're witnessing, for better and for worse, tells us through Shakespeare and his adaptation here the problems that we're facing as a society that we're not owning up to. And uh, 
those problems are grave, and I think we probably need Shakespeare now more than we ever have. Sure, that's right. James Shapiro, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. My pleasure. Good talking. Um, I'm buoyed um, by the end of his piece. He mentions a forthcoming um, Tony Kushner, uh, a film being made, Tony Kushner and Steven Spielberg. I've never seen West Side Story. Have you not? Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff, you know, that's that's. I would canonical. have thought you would have done because of well, because like, of the Shakespeare. Well, I think I like Shakespeare. I don't like. I don't always like. But it's interesting. Yeah, but I'm, there's loads of sort of canonical sort of Sunday afternoon film. I've not seen mm. The Sound of Music. Well, I mean, I can't fault isn't, you for that. Isn't West Side Story <laughs> the same sort of thing? It's kind of a bit of kitsch, isn't it? Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not something I would choose to watch, but I I find it really interesting in yeah. the context of everything that um, that I read in James Shapiro's piece. Yeah. And the history of of of. Of, of that particular work but for the film that I was mentioning Tony Kushner's just amazing so I can't I mean I, I really want to see what he does right. it'll be mad maybe, maybe, maybe that could be my first experience of the whole I thing I think that'll be a good one alright Some teeth are occasionally gnashed about the rise of audiobooks, not the proper way to consume the written word, harumph some cultural gatekeepers. Others disagree. I remember TLS author Lee Child, he may have written some other books too, saying to me that he thought the audio form took us back to the very origins of storytelling, the clan gathered round the campfire and listening to made-up stuff. We now have a regular audio column in the paper, which often focuses on podcasts, but this week contains David Horsepool's thoughts on audio fiction, to which he listens a lot. And what a wide range he listens to. History, Japanese fiction, Proust, Booker-winning Bernadine Evaristo and more. He's in the studio with us now to explain himself. David, hello. Hello. Firstly, are any of your own well-received uh, <laughs> books available in audio form? Um, not, not easily available. But they are... Re- well, if you phone me up, I'll read them out <laughs> to you. No, um, I believe that the first book I ever wrote was turned into an audio book, but it's whatever the audio equivalent is of out of print, Why Alfred Burned the Cakes. Oh. I think somebody... Did record that. It's quite short, so yeah. it can take them long. The next one you write, I bet, will be recorded as an audio book, they're all books kind of are now, aren't they? Uh, I think so, yeah. yeah. I had to do yeah. my own. Yeah. And I've... you have to go into a studio, and I sat there for... You read the whole of your I own? read the whole book, and ah. I did f- three lots of four hours or five hours, and it makes you hate the book. <laughs> what happens when you make a mistake? You just have to pause and go back. So they do, not, they yeah. do let you do it, because I always wonder how much... Editing, David. Yeah, it's not just live. It's not that, you know, they just let it... You get fine. one shot yeah, yeah, yeah. I just assumed they were faultless. No. Well, oh. the other thing that I did, because I did mine while my book was still in late proof stage. So happily, I found a couple of errors... And I also found a couple of sentences that didn't sound quite right. Because you know when you read it out, you can sort Much of hear better. a lack yeah. of... A sort of clash or a lack of euphony. And so I did. So, yeah, so, I think, well, it's very good for that. Yeah, it makes you... So you like audio fiction? I do. Well, audio, books, books, audio books, fiction, yeah. audio fact as well, yeah. When do you listen to it, David? Um, I'm afraid I generally listen to it on my commute, which I generally do on my bicycle. So that's not actually safe, is it? I don't think it's unsafe, personally. Would I mean, you let would your you, children do it? Well, Question. would you allow deaf people to ride bikes? I would. They I can't would. hear the traffic coming. They're, That's not their know. choice, though, is it, David? No, no. But I'm just saying it's not inherently dangerous. <laughs> okay. Would you let I your children? We'll let would you let your children do it? <laughs> no, but you know they're children. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So do you think, unless that's a philosophical question, because I think people do get a bit exercised about this. I remember talking on the radio about this and people got very annoyed with the idea that listening is not the same as reading. That The argument was reading is sort of eat your vegetables good for you and part of sort of the great education process, whereas listening is kind of a shortcut and, and sort of cheating a bit. Yeah, I think that is probably a little bit in that, in that, um, well, when writing this piece, it was slightly sprung on me, the idea of writing it, in that I didn't uh, sit down and download all these things and then offer a review of them. I was um, approached, because it was known that I do Corralled. listen to these things. I wouldn't say that. Encouraged. <laughs> and uh, so then I was thinking about all the stuff I've listened to recently, and it's quite difficult to sort of check it, listen back to it, go through it again in the way that you can with a book and you know if you I if I had been doing it for review from the beginning I might have taken some notes but I wouldn't encourage that on a bicycle either um so this is more realistic this is the genuine it is the genuine experience and part of the kind of downside of that experience is it's a sort of one-shot deal you know as with you actually reading it out um you can listen back to it but you know generally it's it's all going forward and you, you hear it once. So is there some stuff that you wouldn't do? So if you really wanted to luxuriate over the prose? Yeah. Well, I'd um, try and um, justify listening to Proust on my bicycle as I come in. And what I have done with that, I've, it's a sort of thing that I take up and put down. I'm sure a lot of people do this with Proust in general. But um, I got a very nice hardback edition in lots of volumes an everyman edition of the Scott Moncrief translation of Proust years ago and I've taken them on holiday and things just one little volume of them but also done various bits of it as an audio experience so I'll kind of dip in and out where are you in the story now well I got up to the end I I haven't done it in a bit but I got up to the end of the Galmont way so sort of that's about three in and what's the difference because I read recently The Way by Swans, mm-hmm. as it's now translated with Swans Way as it once was. Yes. Uh, is it the very labyrinthine long sentences? There's a, the publisher, one of the publishers had turned it down and said it takes uh, someone 40 pages to turn over in bed. Well, it does, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, um, is that easier when you're listening to it, or is it more d- It depends how well it's done, I think. I think it can be a bit easier. I fa- Sometimes you have to go back and read those sentences again, and you wonder where you started and what, you know, who's talking, what you know who's talking, but, you know, where you're going. And actually, if it's very well read, the kind of modulation of those sentences actually works pretty well, and, you, and especially if the translation's holding up you actually feel as if you're being carried along by the prose in a different kind of way. With the Balzac, I imagine that that lends itself to the audio medium and your kind of sporadic listening much, yes, more, it did. much more readily because it, they were written to be serialised for yeah, one thing. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot more going on, you know. So you have that that's slightly, you know, as with uh, tuning into something on telly or whatever, you have that sense of wanting to know what happens next in just exactly the same way. But you way. can switch off, quite. The other thing you yeah. can't do when you read is switch off. That's true. And actually, since I got a new set of headphones that I don't have to sort of stop and fiddle about with my phone or whatever, I, I, you know, when I if I go past things that are just too noisy, you know, London's a very noisy place, then I can just switch it off for a, a minute and 
then come back to it and I haven't missed anything kind of thing. I don't know how much you're just showing off in this uh, column. You well, almost completely. Yeah. Yeah. Very eclectic. It's, it, yeah. Eclectic is, is one way of, of putting it. How do you pick what to, to, to listen to? Um, because if I had to write a list of things that you might be reading, I'd have predicted your first one, Andrew Roberts on Churchill, because you're a great historian yourself. I was interviewing Andrew Roberts as well, so yeah. it seemed <laughs> like a good idea. Husband's holiday. Uh, <laughs> Thereafter, it gets a bit diverse. How, what's your? How do you pick this stuff? Well, it, it's partly through recommendations. I mean, the the, the Japanese classic Soseki book Kokoro that I got because um, I read a review in the TLS, yeah. and I think I Harry read Hotter, I'm a Cat as a result of it. Well, I, I oh, that would be a really good one to hear. It would an be audio version. A haughty the cat. only the only Soseki that I could find on audio was Kokoro, which I think is supposed to be his kind of classic, which everybody reads as a sort of Japanese school child, um, which is a depressing thought because it's a tale of. Um, self-denial and suicide um so how was listening to that brilliant was it? and it's very short um i think it's probably only 100 pages or something 120 pages as a novel so it's only about seven hours so you can i think you actually get a sense of it sort of unfolding a bit more slowly in a kind of stately pace which is very good for the, it's sort of it's got this sort of formal quality of being on the edge of the modern world clinging to the the traditions of the Japanese past so it's got a nice balance non-fiction or fiction which has worked best for you um probably fiction actually the book that I didn't mention I kind of ran out of room that I think almost worked best as a an audio book was uh, Francis Spufford's book Golden uh, Hill. Yeah, much beloved uh, in the TLS. Yeah, I read that because of the TLS review, and it nearly got nominated. It nominated for a lot of prizes, didn't it? It's a yeah, historical novel. Exactly, a great historical novel about um, 18th century New York um, before independence, and brilliantly read by Sarah Borges. I think is how you pronounce her name. It's the quality of the reading does matter in a case like that because she does all sorts of different atmospheres and voices and so on but without kind of descending into do they have silliness. to do that do you find people have to he, he, he do lots of voices or whatever the uh, he the, do the police and yeah, different voices yeah, um well some do some don't i talked about um i didn't Bernadine. do my book in a, uh, in a variety you didn't do an accent oh that's a real shame i know yeah you should have thought about that. No, it feels like a missed opportunity now. Yeah. No, I look back at it. Could Absolutely. do the stage version. <laughs> in a Dic- that's, that's a Dickensian version. Or we'll just have some guest... guest um, well, you need to break it. Yeah. Stars. Maybe I'll do it my next one. Yeah, that's some, a good idea. Yeah, it is actually. So well, how do they... Because you, you well, mentioned Bernard Neveristo, so Girl, Woman, Other wins the booker. Yeah, and there are 12 different uh, um, sort of protagonists, really, to take on there. And the uh, narrator, who's Anna Maria Nabire, um, she's pretty good at most of them. She she brings them all to life. And I, actually, I think she actually gives a bit more to that book than I feel it would have on the page. It felt a tiny bit to me as if it was a bit flat. I might be being a bit controversial. Um, and slightly they? distanced yeah. from me, uh, sort of setting out each person's... Um, background and kind of why we're interested in them and actually she breathes a bit more life into it i felt um but she's she's better at 
some of the ca- characters than she is at others, in fact. One of the things they could have done if they... I mean, at some point, the economics of this is going to make sense, aren't they, where more people buy the audiobook than buy the book. If you've got that type of book with 12 different voices, they'll hire 12 actors. I imagine well, so. I, did they not do that with... with um, George Saunders. Yeah, yeah, Lincoln yeah, in the Bardo. Yeah, yeah, yeah they had... cast of yeah. is what is made, very famous it? actors. I think it was does help, yeah. yes. So at some point, they'll, they'll do... But then, are we listening to a play... Well, in, in the case of something like Lincoln and the Bardo, I think it is quite play-like, mm. so that works. But I think there is something rather nice about having the single voice doing it and you know, slightly change... The clever ones slightly change the way they deliver something but don't absolutely kind of ham it up. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that works pretty well, well with the ones who could do it. And obviously the... the um, narrator who read out uh, Andrew Roberts's Churchill biography which obviously has long quotations from Churchill he had to choose that's Stephen Thomas he obviously had to choose how Churchillian to go so how goes how did he go through well he doesn't quite do a full impersonation but it's different from his narrating voice but, and it seems to me bit, to work a bit more jowl behind yeah, it yeah a little bit more jowl and growl yeah <laughs> but at some point again with non-fiction it would take a lot of effort, and you you could play the the audio there. So this is when yes. Churchill does his radio broadcast. Uh, we'll fight them on the beaches. Oh, I see. You could actually just just interpolate some. Well, of at it. some point, if it's worth your because basically quotation in printed form is just taking it from its context and, and redelivering it in the same format. You could make the argument that quotation in a radio into an audio format could be the same thing. Yeah. Maybe a massive pain. That would be quite hard work, you would have thought. I suppose that yeah. will have to come when and if that replaces the audio version replaces the book as the commercial interest. Yeah, well, as the main as the main one. Yeah. yeah but what do, what do you do with audiobooks? Anything at all? <laughs> um, I've sort of I've listened to some. I can't think of any. Uh, oh, I listened to Tony Judd's uh, massive sweeping history of twentieth century post war. Uh, yes, exactly. That, yeah. And how was that? Um, I found the narrator quite heavy going. Yeah, um, I would have thought that would be quite a difficult yeah. one. Um, yeah. And and I think I've probably listened listened to the odd novel. It's not something that I yeah I, sh- I know I should, but no, I tend to shouldn't. well not necessarily that I should, but it, it makes sense to me, especially when I've spent all day reading, staring at a page. It would be quite nice to sit yeah. on the train it and doesn't make close sense. my I, eyes. But I'm just not it's making the switch it. to listening rather yeah, than reading. Yeah, I think that's is, right. Is, is I just, I've listened to PG Woodhouse. Uh, which is read very well because, like Martin Jarvis reads. Well, Martin Jarvis is the the, the master. He does just William and stuff He's, like that. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of people, you know, the first thing they'll ever have listened to as an audio book will be probably something like Just William with yeah. Martin Jarvis. And it did work in the sense of it, it. It's short. It's lively. It's sort of funny. It's light. Um, but I'm not sure. But my, my brain likes. I like sitting quietly in my own world. Where the where I'm controlling the pace of it, I think, and I like the, I like the sort of the reading side of things. Well, I found that um, I, had, I listened to a memoir, Leaving Alexandria, by Richard Holloway, who was the Bishop of Edinburgh, who stopped being the Bishop of Edinburgh. He sort of lost his faith. It seems it's kind of partly an exploration of that, but also just partly a memoir of. I imagine that Leaving Alexandria was some reference to Cavafy, who he does quote, but actually he grew up in a. Scottish town called Alexandria Um, and he reads it himself and he reads it very well and there are kind of 
good kind of moments of him uh, saying when he disagreed with a very right-wing sounding priest um, that he resisted the urge to deck him and you it's quite good to have you know the the narrator himself being the author yeah. reading out that kind of impassioned moment so I think if, it does work I wonder if we should take this opportunity on a final point to say that we have an extract well done Thea uh, as a bonus episode uh, in this week's podcast feed uh, which is a reading of an extract that we're running from the new Hilary Mantel novel oh uh, marvellous that, that is read by Ben Miles. So uh, everyone can let us know what they make of that. Well, I've read the extract. I've not heard the extract yet. Well, the extract is brilliant. Mm. Yes, I, I was just reading it while I was wait, re- waiting in the wrong uh, floor to come and do this <laughs> podcast. And Stop, don't, it, don't destroy the magic, David. It feels so <laughs> I know, so no, we just, we just happened to meet yeah, exactly. all three of us. What are you doing? Um, and, um, yeah, it made me feel slightly sweaty and nervous about, yeah, it's, it's, because it's, it's uh, Thomas... Uh, appearing to be about to torture somebody. I also, this disgusted Lucy Dallas, but I'm going to tell you that I had a copy of, of the book in my hands and I just looked the last two pages to see how it ended. Well, you, I, you didn't know already. <laughs> <laughs> or does it? Oh. I don't know. I don't want to ruin it for anyone. No spoilers, right. no spoilers here. Uh, He's David, on a Caribbean beach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Well, I was saying, Quentin Tarantino has changed what happened to Shannon Tate and all that, didn't he? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. And get reimaginings. Yeah, I don't think Hilary Mantel's in the... It would be a bit of a the... departure for Hilary Mantel, I would think. Well, you'll have to read all 900 pages <laughs> or be like me, get a copy and I don't mind reading two. all 900 oh, pages I, I, or really re- like, listening yeah. to Ben Miles. Will you do that? Yeah, well, I, I don't know whether whether I might. I have read the others, so I probably will read this one. For the one. completeness yeah. of it. Yeah. I'm rereading Bring the Bodies now. It's really it good. It is tremendous. And, and there are... That's one of those examples where there are various adaptations. So... You can go and see it on stage. You, yeah. There have been TV and there will be, I'm sure, the finished TV product will yeah. come out soon as well. Well, anyway, anyone who gets our podcast can listen to it, which is a... Lucky them. Lucky them. David Horsfall, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Toby Lichtig, David Horsfall and James Shapiro. Make sure you listen to that extract of Hilary Mantel. Elsewhere in our paper, we tackle paternity, cats, and have a three-page poem by Paul Muldoon. Next week is our bumper spring books edition of the TLS in which we ask, what makes good writing good? Mm. Until then, from fear and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. 
Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.